What's up, everybody? Good to see all of you here today and those of you who are online. Yes, we are aware of the audio problem that occurred, but I think it's fixed. At least I hope so. Anyway, um, we, we tried this this morning. I have to learn how my clicker works. It's coming. Promise. Eventually. All right. Well, that's okay. Uh, anyway, good to see all of you. Those of you who are gathered online, I'm glad you're here too. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I'll be your guide for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, I'm doing a series right now on the Bible, which is really interesting because um, every Sunday I speak uh, from the Bible, but um, this time we're talking about the actual Bible itself, right? And so um, I've been wanting to do this for a number of years, and I really haven't. So this has been kind of fun to um, work through all of this, and uh, you get to um, join me in that process. And um, Dan, I'm still dark on this. Um, I want to begin in kind of an odd place today. Thank you. Kind of an odd place today. Back in 2003, do you remember that far ago? Yes. Back in 2003, um, there was an author, his name was Dan Brown, and he uh, published a book called The Da Vinci Code. In 2006, it was made into a movie uh, directed by Ron Howard, and um, it starred uh, Tom Hanks, Sir Ian uh, McKellen, although I'm not sure he was knighted at that point, but uh, Sir Ian McKellen and um, a delightful young French actress by the name of Audrey Tautou, which is just fun to say, Audrey Tautou. Um, It's an interesting movie, and (sighs) the thing that I want... I want to use this kind of as a springboard because there's some interesting things that occur in this movie that raise certain questions. And what I want you to understand is that, yes, there was controversy around this. There was a lot of controversy around this, and you'll see why in a moment. Um, (laughs) But Dan Brown, the author, actually took an ancient idea, brushed it off, and brought it into the 21st century. So what he suggests in this book and in this movie is not new, okay? Now, if you've not seen it or if you've not read it, spoiler alert, okay? I'm going to wreck it right now. Not only am I going to wreck the point of the movie, I'm probably going to dismantle the whole, you know, fundamental um, central idea. So stick with me. This might be a a little bit of fun. So the central theme here in this book is that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a romantic relationship and a child. (gasps) What, we didn't suck the air out of the room on that one? Oh my gosh, this is sacrilege. Trust me, this idea has been around for a long, long time. Dan Brown just happened to make it more popular and Ron Howard brought it to the screen. And the idea here is not only did they have a child, but he had a whole line of descendants and that there were certain factions within the Catholic Church, some trying to hide these uh, individuals and others trying to hunt them. It's a whole big political thing. Now, I want to hit pause for just a moment because I think this is is, um, an important thing to think about. The idea or the storyline is derived from an ancient text called the Gospel of Mary. Wait a second, that's not in my Bible, right? Okay, so back in roughly 1896 or so, there were uh, a series of manuscripts found in Egypt. Uh, This is a copy of one of them. I'm not sure which one it was. I found it on the internet. I thought it looked cool. 
Um, but this is a Coptic gospel. So Coptic is a, um, a language, a group of people that's kind of a Greek variation, very ancient. In fact, I have a friend of mine who lived in Egypt for a number of years, and there's still quite a Coptic population there. There are Coptic Christians still in Cairo. And in fact, most of those individuals still claim to be true Egyptians because they never married um, with um, uh, Arab or Arab-speaking people. They kind of remained a community in and of themselves. And so they say, their claim is that they're the purest of all Egyptians. Kind of convenient. <coughs> but the idea here is that you have a group of people, a, a religious sect, as it were, that is Christian in nature, and yet, over time, have produced some of their own literature. And we find a couple of these, the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Thomas. You haven't heard of that one either, have you? So there are other um, accounts of Jesus that came elsewhere in the world, not necessarily out of Israel. Now, again, part of our pause here is we need to understand a little more about this. Because the idea of gospel, at least in today's language, is when we talk about gospel, it's the gospel truth, right? Well, that's gospel. That means true. Hold up. The academic idea of gospel is a little different. And the best way to describe it, there is a more technical definition, but the way that I try to understand this is when we talk about a gospel, we're talking about a very particular type of biography. It's a term from literature, not necessarily a term from theology. It's kind of a mixture of both, but I think you understand. So when we talk about the gospel of Mary, what we're really talking about is a biography of Jesus from a particular perspective. Okay, so we have four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? We have those because they are biographies of Jesus. You read them, it tells you all about Jesus. But it does so with a lens towards religious truth related to the person of Jesus. And so we see these types of things elsewhere in the world in these other so-called gospels. Now, this one is called uh, a Coptic gospel because of the language it's written in, but also it's called a Gnostic gospel. Now, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit trail, but essentially it's written from a very particular uh, theological perspective. Um, I don't have time to develop Gnosticism, and trust me, it'd be great if you wanted to go to sleep, okay? <laughs> I'm going to spare you that. And that's, of course, the challenge when we talk about the things like, um, you know, religious history, is that I want to make it as interesting as possible because I think it's valuable to people, but on the other hand, <laughs> you don't want to go too deep because, again, a lot of ink has been spilled on this, and it's great for insomnia. So I'm going to try to keep it, uh, keep it down when it comes to that. So that's where we want to hit the pause button. So this, this gospel that uh, appeared in, you know, roughly um, 1896, or when it was found, was dated back to roughly um, the second century, so sometime after 100 CE, 100 AD, as it were. Okay, so it's a second century document, it's written about Jesus, and it includes the perspective of Mary Magdalene, and in this, there is a uh, certain section or phrase that suggests that there was a romantic relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. 
and that has fueled speculation for centuries. So let's not credit Dan Brown with it. Let's just credit him with, um, with making it popular, okay? Now, in the movie itself, uh, one of the characters, Sir Lee Teabing, which is just a great name, <laughs> Sir Lee Teabing, who's played by uh, McKellen, he claims that this story is true and that the Catholic Church has squashed it because it undermines their narrative and it undermines their authority. So he's blaming the Catholic Church for this not to, um, for it, um, to not be a popular story because it's, it's contrary to the other four Gospels. And he claims that there has been uh, a widespread campaign in order to keep this story silent. Now, what's so interesting to me is that, as I'm reading through this, um, like 15, 20 years ago when this movie came out, conspiracy theories nowadays don't sound so theoretical anymore, <laughs> just because of some of the things that have been going on in the world. But the, the story, I think, highlights two very important questions, okay? You know, whether you, know, you, you want to believe the fiction or not, or anyway, the, the bottom line is there's questions that surface here that I think Christians need to be aware of. And frankly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably ought to have a grasp on, on, on your history. And so that's what we're trying to do today. Here's the first question. The question is, how did the New Testament come to be? Have you ever wondered that? We have these books in our New Testament. How did they get there? And more importantly, and this is the one that everyone gets all, all excited about, who got to decide which books made the New Testament, right? Because ultimately, that's what, what this character, Tebing, his argument is. He's like, look, there's this story out there, and it's found in this particular book. And why is that book not in the New Testament? And others are, and there's a grand conspiracy. There's a campaign against it because it undermines authority. It's based on power structures. Now, I want to note something, uh, another term that you probably ought to be aware of, and that's the word canon, okay? So canon is official. It's accepted as genuine, accepted as accurate and authoritative. Now, what's fascinating to me is that this word has now come up um, several times in popular culture, specifically as it relates to the Star Wars franchise. Because there are Star Wars movies that are canon, and there are Marvel movies that are canon, which I think is really interesting. Uh, all the rest of them are a bit speculative. Okay. <laughs> but canon, in this particular case, means that it's officially accepted as accurate and authoritative. So when we talk about the New Testament canon, we are talking about the accepted books, the 27 books that make up the New Testament, uh, and why they're, they're actually in there. So we're talking about the canonization of things, okay? So that's the technical term. You can, while you're friends at your next, at your next party, you can bring up the word canon, and you can talk about it in terms of Star Wars, and everybody be like, ooh, wow. Okay, so, now, here's what I wish. I wish that all of the books of the New Testament 
were put together and placed in front of the disciples, and the disciples signed a document saying, this is it, this is the one, these are the ones you need to pay attention to. Kind of like, you know, the Declaration of Independence or something along those lines, with all the signatures. And you could point to and say, well, there they are. Well, that didn't happen, did it? No, because in a lot of cases, um, <laughs> those books were written, those letters were written, and those things were compiled after they had passed away. So there isn't one there. And I think, too, that we probably ought to pay attention to this, that those men and women weren't worried about written documents per se. Some of them were, but not all of them. And if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. I mean, at the time, the Holy Spirit was hot. He was doing things. We have this thing called the Book of Acts, right? A-C-T-S, the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. No, it wasn't. It was the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and the disciples were just hanging on for dear life, if you read the book. But the point is, the Spirit was active and moving, and they were trying to catch up, and there were people to reach, and there were things to do. And, and the only time they really wrote anything to these churches was for correction or encouragement when they couldn't actually be present with them. So it really wasn't on their mind to have this well-documented approach, the theological arguments of the ontological existence of God, whatever that means, right? So you ha this wasn't important. God was on the move, and they were just trying to follow him. And of course, when they're writing, they're doing it for a specific reason. But it was later on, there was a growing concern for a historical record because there was a risk of losing some of that history. Sp uh, specifically um, is the Gospel of Luke, or, or uh, if you take the book of Luke and the book of Acts, they're written by the same author, you kind of got to jam them together. Uh, somebody somewhere along the line decided to put John in between them. I don't know why. But you've got Luke-Acts as really two, two um, sections of the same book. And Luke was very... Uh, concerned about all of this for a number of reasons. First of all, he was Greek. He was a Greek physician, and so accuracy was important to him based on his training and on his own culture. And so around 90 CE, the Common Era, or what we call 90 AD, Luke started putting this thing together because he wanted eyewitness accounts. And the people who had uh, had an eyewitness account of Jesus were beginning to die off. And so he interviewed them so they have an understanding of what actually happened. Now what's so interesting is that the first gospel, the oldest gospel, is the one of Mark, and Luke quotes him liberally. So there was a lot of, of um, I'll call it cross-pollination at that time. There were, there were, they were using each other's work because they didn't want to lose it. Mark's gospel was probably put together around 60 CE, so 30 years prior, and um, Mark was a close associate of Peter, and so when we read Mark's gospel, we're really reading Peter's account, what he remembered of Jesus. And there's details that are in that particular gospel that we don't find in the other ones. It's a fascinating read. So Luke puts that together because he's concerned about the historical record. Now, in order for us to address uh, Sir Teabing's criticism of the Catholic Church and the Bible, there are some ideas to consider, some things that we need to think about. And here's the first one. History is far more messy than we care to admit. Let's just be honest about that. Um, and it's more messy than Brown's character portrays. Now, to be fair, okay, I'm gonna be fair. 
for a moment. Brown was not, was, was, uh, sorry, he was writing fiction. And that fiction was to entertain and frankly to sell books, okay? That's the reason why he wrote it. He's not making a scholarly or a theological argument per se, okay? So let's, let's be fair to Mr. Brown. Um, and it's a great storyline. I mean, it's really an interesting thing if you haven't seen the movie. I mean, you just gotta, you know, <coughs> watch it with a certain amount of, uh, well, a grain of salt, as it were. Uh, make sure that you've got some filters in place as you watch that movie. And I, and I think that um, this criticism that Teabing brings up uh, is, is a useful place to start to see how the New Testament actually developed, Okay. Now, by the way, one of the things I want to also mention is the Jewish rabbis canonized the Old Testament. We, we inherited that. And, and largely, none of the New Testament writers and none of the, the subsequent um, uh, scholars have ever argued anything in the Old Testament largely because Jesus accepted it as the written form of the Old Testament, Jesus presumed that to be true, and so that carried over to the New Testament and the New Testament writers. Does this make sense? So we're not talking about the Old Testament here because that is a whole history in and of itself. We're talking strictly about the New Testament needed to make, make sure of that. Now, there are some factors that support the New Testament canon. And um, let me just give them to you, and we'll take them one by one. Time, voices, and criteria. I'm just gonna walk through this uh, relatively quickly. Um, the first thing that, that happened with the New Testament was time, the timeline. Deciding on which books were accepted took a long time. Like almost 400 years. So from the time that the apostles walked the earth and were ministering and Paul was doing his missionary journeys and all of that 400 years before we actually had what we would call the canon of the, of the New Testament, okay? This is really important, 400 years. Galatians and James were written and circulated around 50 CE, very early on. And the final uh, canon was declared um, at the Council of Carthage, if I remember right, in 397. That's a long time, folks. That's longer than our country's been in existence. But over that period of time, the canonization, the development of the New Testament took place. Now, the second thing here are voices. The other thing to remember here, that there were many scholars over that 400-year period who weighed in on the various books and letters. So it wasn't like there was one single council that decided everything. No, this happened over a long time with an awful lot of voices um, tossing their two cents worth in. And by the way, these men were brilliant, and women, brilliant men and women, and they were passionate about Jesus and his kingdom. And most of the earlier, uh, early um, scholars suffered horribly for their faith. This is not a casual thing. They weren't just kind of, you know, sitting in their universities, you know, saying, well, this, this book, maybe, maybe not that, mm, mm These were people who were deeply committed to the cause of Christ and had suffered terribly because of it, and they wanted to get it right. And I think that's an important thing to remember. So let's take a look briefly. I'm going to run through this. In the first century, from zero to 100, 
the primary people were the apostles themselves. Um, the 12, of course, but also Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and others who were about the ministry of God. And in those early years, the major influence on, on the use and adoption of Scripture were really those apostles themselves. <clears throat> so let me give you an example of this. We find this one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is writing to this church, and he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. And so what would happen is, is that when Paul would go and he would set up a church, and if he, if he um, uh, uh, couldn't go back to them and visit them as often as he'd like, he would write them letters. So we have First and Second Thessalonians in the New Testament. And in, in, in those letters, he writes this. And so you wouldn't have just one large church, you would have multiple house churches. And so they would circulate these letters around. And so he said, look, I, I want you to do this. There's a very good chance that Thessalonians was written um, earlier rather than later. But the point is, is that this was common. The words of the apostle Paul were being read to all of the um, uh, to the early Christians, and, and this is important because this begins to develop this idea of important documents to the church. And we find this in 2 Peter also. He writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear bar- brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. This is important. Peter is identifying Paul as being another voice. He writes the same way in all his letters, meaning he's, he's consistent. Paul is consistent. You need to pay attention to him. Speaking into, uh, them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, we can talk about the distortions all we want, but notice what Peter's saying here. The other scriptures and Paul's letter. Now, whether he's elevating it to the same thing or not, I don't know, but the point is he's saying you need to pay attention to what Paul is writing just as you do the other scriptures, the Old Testament. That's a pretty big deal, wouldn't you agree? Uh, This is something that that he's doing. Um, Clement of Rome, later on, referenced Matthew and Luke um, and also the book of Hebrews. And, by the, and he, uh, he lived um, and ministered right between the first and second century, which brings us to the second century. We've got four major players. Clement of Rome, who I just mentioned. Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp, what a great name. What was his parents thinking? Polycarp. <laughs> Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus of Lyon. <coughs> Polycarp was martyred, sent to Rome, and killed in the Colosseum. When I think of what they suffered and why they suffered, the first question I ask is, would I do the same? And the second is, what they tell us matters, I think. In the second century, we start seeing things like, it is written. So Clement and, and Ignatius, when they're writing 
uh, their own letters, it is written, and they refer to some of these older documents that the apostles actually wrote. <clears throat> Each reference several of the, the letters of Paul and the Gospels. And these early documents from, from these saints demonstrate that there wasn't some church body um, that was formally approving the letters and the Gospels. This was happening in a very spontaneous sort of way. Irenaeus, the last of all of these, uh, lived towards the end of the second century. He was a student of Polycarp himself and was often credited with compiling the Gospel of John. Um, it was even said that he may have been the last of the early church fathers to actually hear the Apostle John speak. Can you imagine what that would have been like? He puts together this beautiful Gospel of John. And he writes and references much of what we call the New Testament today. And then somewhere in the midst of this uh, second century is when the gospel of Mary and some of the other Gnostic gospels were written. You also need to understand that in the second century, some of the books were hotly contested. I mean, seriously, Second Peter for one of them. Not so sure it was really Peter, Eventually it was included. Uh, James was hotly contested. Now most of the time, if you know anything about her, uh, church history, James was not liked by Luther, Martin Luther, hundreds and hundreds of years later. But James was contested early on. There was long discussions in these writings, and it's important for us to remember that somebody just didn't check boxes, that there was discussion, there was debate, and there were there was divisiveness over some of these things. In the third century, the one that um, bubbles up to the surface is Origen. Um, uh, he was a great scholar. He wrote critical studies of, um, the, uh, of many of the letters and the books. Um, he wrote a lot of uh, sermons, too, and, and um, the circulating New Testament books, the ones that were accepted, he, he wrote about them, he, he preached about them, and he emphasized the fact that they were inspired by God himself. And he was the primary voice of that age. And then in the fourth century, we've got some great names. Eusebius of Caesarea, <clears throat> one of the greatest church historians to ever walk the earth. Athanasius of Alexandria, who was um, not so... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not so politely called the black dwarf, but powerful in the pulpit. My goodness. Man was fearless about the things that he preached about. These were the two, uh, were two of the primary people that, that talked about um, uh, what we call the New Testament now. And, and Eusebius himself was the first one in, in, in his church history to lay out what would eventually become the canon. He was the first one to put it together. 300 years after it was written, he was the one who said, hey, by the way, these ones we might want to consider as official. Okay? So again, not some grand sort of secret star council sort of thing making all these decisions, but rather one scholar offering one possibility. Athanasius, somewhere in the mid of uh, 4th century, began to refine that canon, and then finally in 397, the Council of Carthage established the final 
form. Now, please remember something. The Catholic Church as we know it never really got established until 315. <laughs> At least not as an organized body. And some 80-odd years later, they actually decided that, okay, here's what the canon is, Council of Carthage. So for 300 years, the ancient saints were guided by Scripture which brings us to our third factor. Remember, we talked about time. We talked about voices. And here's the third one. It's criteria. Criteria. What's the criteria? Why are these canonized? We, we, we talked about who got to decide, but how were these the ones that were chosen? And ultimately, the canonized texts were picked because of two factors. And you need to see this. One is authorship, and the other is inspiration. Now, authorship is, is a, little more, a little more interesting because, really, authorship depends on whether or not it was an apostle. Because Jesus had authority, didn't he? And he gave authority over evil spirits and sickness to his disciples. And they were given the, um, the uh, mandate to, to preach, to preach the good news of the kingdom. And because Jesus had authority and he gave it to his apostles, they had authority, and so their authorship matters. And we choose the books of the New Testament canon because of who authored them. And the second issue, the one that comes up from time to time, is inspiration. Is there evidence within the book that the Holy Spirit was active, and does the writing fit the rest of the canon? Does it all come together? And, and maybe some things are in tension with others, but is there some type of theme that runs through them that you can say, yes, the Holy Spirit is active here? And that's why they were ultimately chosen. The development of the New Testament was more spontaneous and organic than Dan Brown's certibing. Um, charges, ultimately. So we want to talk about the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Thomas, and why do, we, why do we not find those? Well, they don't fit the criteria. Their authorship is unknown. Now, it's credited to Thomas, and it's credited to Mary Magdalene, but there's no evidence to suggest that. There's no history of people pointing to those individuals as being major teachers within the church. And Thomas is really interesting to me because Thomas actually headed east, and there's evidence to suggest that he started Christian communities in both India and China. Wow. So they don't fit authorship, and they're written from a Gnostic, which is not necessarily a Christian perspective per se. They were written late, not early, and their inspiration is questionable. And the perspective is from something completely different, Gnosticism. And again, the Catholic Church, well, didn't really get established till 315. 300 years of debate. <laughs> I'm not sure there was a body there to squash things. So the bottom line here, this is the thing I want you to remember because I always try to have something for you to remember. Now there's little interesting factoids and you can go bash Dan Brown's book if you want. 
Brothers and sisters, the New Testament is trustworthy. It's trustworthy because it stood the test of time in many ways. Brilliant scholars. I mean, off the chart, brilliant people. Over a long period of time, three, four hundred years, highlighted these books not because of an agenda or a church body, or a church authority, or some church narrative, none of those things. Rather, these were the life-giving words of Jesus. And they recognized that within the books themselves. And they said, no, no, this is what we want you to know. It has nothing to do with politics or anything. This is, this is Jesus telling us what the Father's heart is. It's a beautiful picture They're committed to that. And they had value to the ancient Christians because they circulated. They needed to hear these things, especially when they were under persecution. And oh, they were. And so they would read these life-giving words of Jesus and they would see the miracles themselves because that didn't end when Jesus was gone and that didn't end when the disciples were gone. It kept going on and on. And they said, these are the things that you need to hear. And so when you and I open the text, these are not just words that we're reading. They're not just words penned by human hands. They were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also you have to remember they were collected, they were compiled, and they were transmitted by people under the same inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully the same thing happens today brilliant and faithful and passionate people over centuries so that you could know the presence of God. And you could open the book and interact with him. That he could speak to you directly through those words. That you could see yourself in the, in the people of that day and age and go, oh yeah, I identify with that. They did that all for you. And they did it because They knew the presence and the power of the kingdom and they wanted to share it. Holy Spirit, I'm grateful for the book. It's not really a book, Lord. It's a library, isn't it? But I'm thankful for every word that's in it, even the ones I don't understand, and that's a lot of them. But I'm thankful for the history the people who were committed to making that book, that library available to the rest of us so that we too could know the presence and the power of the living God who loves us so very, very much. They experienced that love and that inspiration and it's passed down through the centuries and we get to benefit from their work, from their love and from their passion. And I pray, Lord, that every time that we open the word, that we wouldn't do it casually, that we would do it with a sense of history, with a sense of deep love and understanding, knowing that people bled and died for that. The sacrifice of Jesus is carried out through his followers. They understood what it meant to be dead in Christ, or dead, or, uh, dead to sin but alive in Christ. They understood that. And I pray that we would too. And God, as, as we go um, eventually out of this place today, 
My prayer for each one of us is that every time we open the word, we would hear you speak to us. That your presence would be so obvious and that your power would thro- flow through us so that we too can add to the storyline that you have been telling for so long. Thanks for giving us that opportunity. Thanks for meeting us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.